conditioning himself, whatever, to, uh, for for some some reason, and uh, they're supposed to operate. And then I guess uh, uh, he'd be on a be a tracheotomy for for uh, well, some time. So. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Our daughter's in Oklahoma with the tornadoes right now. She's in a storm shelter. So. Mm. Really? Yeah. Yeah. We saw that it was passing north and west, but it's going through Oklahoma. Yeah. Yeah. Let's say her name again. Amelia. Amelia? Amelia. Let's start. Name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, um, for the gift of our life from you, the gift of yourself this morning in Mass, for your presence always. It's so easy to forget that you're here. We so depend on our eyes, our senses, and there's so much in the modern world that encourages us to look past you because you're not here in your body. Everything about our faith says you are here. We have every reason to be glad, to hope, um, um, especially in light of this class, to learn to see you where ordinarily we don't. That's the whole purpose of this. I ask for um, a special gift for each of us to be strengthened in our powers of faith, help our minds and hearts both, not just our minds, our minds and hearts both to open, to see you at work among us, to not take you for granted, not take others for granted, um, to give ourselves completely to what you're asking. The world is a fuller place with you. Um, people that don't see you live in an emptier room. Ours is full, there's furniture everywhere. Um, help us to take a pleasure in it, to be glad. Um, strengthen us in our efforts and the work that we're doing together. Um, speaking for myself, it's a great blessing for me to do this with everybody. Um, what a great spirit for everybody to be doing this. Um, ask for a special blessing for Amelia. Is that, mm -hmm. um, up north. Um, and mm, all the people in the way of that tornado help people to be sensible. Um, we so often tempt things um, in our pride. Um, watch over them, help them to take care, to protect themselves. Um, we're glad um, this thing has passed us here, that we can have this time. Be with Rod um, and those who care for him. Um, help all of us to have quiet hearts. Not an easy thing to do when any of us faces death. Um, it's something we're asked to be glad for, hard to do. Strengthen each of us that we can make a place for death. You opened the door for us, um, gave us every reason not to be sad, to be glad. Help us to make that real in our own lives. We offer all of these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. I want to read a poem that I'm, um, I hope I don't forget. Chester, if I do, just raise your hand. Let's, can you all pull out the Dunn selection again? We may have done this already. Um, I can't remember, but. 
Um, let's even if we did, let's do it again. Um, we've got maybe three weeks. I've had it half in my mind to do Hopkins Wreck of the Ditchland, but I'm I'm not I'm gonna take it. We may be doing Hopkins the next few weeks. Or maybe next fall. Maybe the next three weeks. The next three weeks. Um, be a good way to end the semester. Test your metal. See what we're all made of. Anyway, we'll see. I think I might because it's it's such an extraordinary poem. And you guys have been you guys have been brave and foolish long enough to I think to be able to do this, so let's see. Anyway, Death Be Not Proud. Holy Sonic Town. Death be not proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. For those whom thou thinkest thou dost overthrow, die not, poor death, and yet canst thou kill me. From rest and sleep, which but thy pictures be, much pleasure. Then from thee much more must flow, and soonest our best men with thee do go. Rest of their bones and souls' delivery, thou art slave to fate, chance, kings, and desperate men, and doth with poison, war, and sickness dwell, and poppies or charms can make us sleep as well and better than thy stroke. Why swellest thou then? One short sleep past, we wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. It's appropriate because this is the end of Easter time, and we're supposed to be glad for our risen life coming out of death. So let it be so for us. Okay. Okay. Boethius. Um, a couple of things. Two two general thoughts before we begin. Before we begin, when I was leaving the room, Chesterton Chester said, coming out, he said, I, he, he "Sorry, he got promoted." What? Chesterton. Oh, um, you're in good company if that's so. Yeah. Chesterton's the one that brought me into the. Have you all read Orthodoxy? Who's not read Orthodoxy? I haven't read it. Holy cow. No, I'm not. I'm not going to do orthodox. But I'm, I'm. I'm saying this is honestly. I'm reading it again after I don't know 30, 40 years, and so glad to be back with him. Chesterton orthodoxy is the book that brought me into the church. He wasn't Catholic then. He was, wasn't Catholic. To me, it's one of the most extraordinary books I have ever. It, it's written. I don't know if you know G.K. Chesterton. He was a journalist in England. He took, he took on all the great minds of the 20th century. I'm not kidding, all of them. But he did it from the perspective of a journalist. He wasn't an academic. He wasn't an intellectual. Um, he's, he's an ordinary man speaking to ordinary men in ordinary language. He loves paradoxes. I was so taken with him when I first read him. I, I gave it, I don't, we had not converted yet. I, and I gave it to Suzanne. She was so irritated at his paradoxes, she threw the book at me. <laughs> he loves paradoxes. He plays with language. Um, I think it's one of his gifts. Um, very playful. Um, what, what stands out for me about Chesterton is he had, I, I'm not exaggerating if you appreciate anything that I've done here. He's one of the greatest minds I've ever encountered. And he's one of the few people who has a heart as large as his mind. Intellectuals tend to be in their heads. Mm -hmm. You know, they can argue and make statements. They can do great 
Christian apologetic work. They can make an argument. Chesterton loves life. I mean, there's almost nothing he puts his mind on that, that doesn't give rise to some humor, some affection. He's, he's been a hero, and a, a model and ideal for me all my life. I'm, I'm going back to him now. If you have not read G.K. Chesterton's Orthodoxy, you, you just... One of the pillars of our church you'll miss. He, he, I'm saying that metaphorically. It's just that his, his understanding of the nature of things is so rich, so broad, that in one sense he's speaking for the whole church even though he's doing it in a very small book. There's nothing indoctrinating. He's not proselytizing. That's not his end. Um, somebody made a, a foolish challenge. It, he, he wrote a book called, um, I think called Heretics, or What's Wrong with the World? I can't remember which one. And some critics in England said, oh, it's all good and well that you say what's wrong with the world, but let's have your philosophy. Chesterton's line at the beginning of Orthodoxy is one of you said, um, how did he put it? Um, something like you don't want to say to a fool um, that, that you can't make sense of this because he was only too glad, too ready to step up and make a defense of his philosophy and that's what he did in that book it truly, it's a one you'll love it, you'll, you'll feel at home with the world, you'll just take a joy in it, it's full of humor but it's just brilliant. You, you can't read a page without feeling Chesterton's mind drawing light on something. Ordinary things. What was his point of writing that book? I mean, was it in defense of something? Or? It really was. I mean, I, I wish I had the book here because I'm not quoting it well, but somebody made a challenge after he wrote this book, What's Wrong with the World or Heretics? I can't remember which. And he said he was only, it's like a, somebody laying down a hanky for a duel. He was only, only too ready to pick it up. Even though, he said, even though I'm a bad shot. He, he just, he, he did it because somebody said, now you've let us know what's wrong with the world. Tell us what your philosophy is. So he's laying out his philosophy. He's not Catholic. He's not proselytizing. That's not his end. He's simply expressing what helped shaped his mind. And when you read it, you, you, at some point you realize this is the bedrock of our life for all of us. What he's saying is so sensible. But he does it with a depth and a humor that most people don't have. So when you read it, you, what you do is you go, yes, yes. Page after page, you go, yes, yes. It's the way it is. It's true. It's true. But <laughs> you say it while you're enjoying the humor of this guy because he's just, um, he's so... That's a great wit. I want to avoid the word. I, wit, wit and humor are two very different things for me. Okay. And I think the English, I'm being fussy right now. All right. I'm not being fussy. <laughs> um, the, the, British, the British have both. But I think of wit as belonging to the head, mm -hmm. to be very witty. Humor is of the heart. Chesterton's a humorist. This man, he can't say anything without sh shining a light on the world because of his mind. He's not witty in the way he's facetious and funny. You feel the humor because you feel his heart. This, I, I meant what I said a minute ago. I've never, I've never read a man with a mind as large as, as his, with a heart as great as his mind. Nobody, nobody. So how did that make you? Hmm? How did that make you want to become Catholic? It was just. Um, 
because it was all right. I mean, everything he said was true. You can't read a page without saying yes, 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 yes. He, he, didn't, he hadn't converted yet, but it, he, he converted shortly after that. You just, I just felt that I was... I, you know this, I was raised Greek Orthodox and, and left the Orthodox Church. I didn't know where I was going. And then read a couple... C.S. Lewis's Abolition of Man. Buckley's the one who mentioned these two books, Abolition of Man and Chesterton's Orthodox. I'd never heard of either writer. I read the two books... Chesterton took me. I mean, I read that and it, 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 I think I must have, something wasn't right in orthodoxy and I, I don't think I could have named it then. And reading that book made me realize there's this whole rich ground there that I wasn't aware of, um, but had some sense. It had, something was wrong. And you only know that because you feel that something somewhere has to be right, even if you can't name it. Chesterton mapped that out. Robert, you said something was wrong with Orthodox? No, something was wrong. I knew that there was something. I, mean, I don't want to go there, Greek Orthodox. I knew that there was something lacking in Orthodoxy. I don't want to go there. but um, It was something like that. You mean something was wrong in the Greek yeah, and yeah, my upbringing. There was yeah, things no, that I couldn't name. Orthodoxy. Reading Orthodoxy, Chesterton <clears throat> Orthodoxy, made me real. And I remember when I made the conversion, my own experiences of it was because leading Orthodoxy meant converting to Catholicism meant leaving Orthodoxy behind. To do that means you leave your family, because to be raised Greek Orthodox means there's no difference between your race and your belief. Um, to become Catholic means you step outside of a, of a Greek ethnic world. And I can remember thinking, my own, this is my description of it, it, it's as if I gave up everything in the world without knowing what was on the other side of a wall, but believing everything on the other side of that wall was better. Just, huh? <coughs> it was really that kind of a decision because it means giving up Everything you know, everything that's familiar to you, you know, everything that's formed you. So, wonderful book. I'm. If you want some summer reading, that I mean, really enjoyable. Read that book. Your mind will feel enriched. Your heart will be strengthened, enlarged. You'll just feel a, a great love awakening with your mind. That's what he does. Um, um, before we start, Marcy, did you want to explain your your work here um, briefly, please? She's <laughs> <laughs> already uh, sending you, daggers at me with her eyes. Did all of you get this that was passed out? Yeah, well, I made it for Bob and me, and it's a, a list, of, but I finished up thinking about you, and I knew you wanted it. <laughs> So it's a list of <clears throat> philosophers from the year 600 B.C. to the year of ours 2000. Some of these that are in here are also in this book we're studying. Because we looked them up and they're there. And then of course we have Robert Alexander as the most popular who's up at the top. <laughs> and so it's just a list. I'm not taking you out to dinner next week, by the way, Marcy. Just know that. <laughs> So anyway, that's what it is. It's for reference, and it's really, really good to have it. Uh huh. I mean, what? Uh. Marcy, what's the difference between the red and the black? 
Oh, the red is um, it's philosophers that I knew or I had heard of or he had mentioned or we had mentioned in class. So you hung out with Plato. <laughs> yeah, you bet. Okay, so that's it. Do you have my title page? What? Oh, yeah, yeah. That was just for you to look at. Can you give it back to Doc when you're done? You don't, you don't want that. Here. I want the content. I want the, <laughs> here. I want the chapters. Here, keep those. Keep back. those. Keep them. Um, <coughs> Chester said something a few minutes ago when we were walking. It was also mentioned by other people here too. So, yeah. Um, do you want to go ahead and say what you said? Our cake maker. Our cake maker. <laughs> Oh, the tea bread. The tea bread. Tell me, tell everybody what you said to me. because I, I said right. it's a lot easier. So it's an easier read. I said, Bob, this one's an easier read. Boethius? Yes. <clears throat> I thought that was such a telling comment. Um, I, I don't want to take much time, but I, it was so telling, and I'm glad he said it. It, it opens up a whole world for me, and I just want to take a minute. And, um, it... I'm not sure that you would have these thoughts, but I think they're worth hearing. It is a much easier read because it's um, is expository. We've been reading literature for the most part, and we can't be in the because nobody's there saying this is what Dante means, this is what Milton means. We're reading an action. Remember, literature is an imitation of what's going on in life. It, it, it renders something concretely. <clears throat> it's not giving us abstract statements. I hope that's clear. Abstract statements mean you leave concrete things behind. You're in a world of ideas in your head. So what you're doing is offering abstractions. Liter I've said this over and over, over and again. Literature returns us to the world. It's like a gift. We go back into the world. We're not in our heads. We return to the world, and we're allowed to experience it again, but through a vision, through somebody who sh helps shape the experience. So if we're reading a Shakespeare play or Dante, if you're reading the Divine Comedy, we're going back into the world. We're re-experiencing it. But we're doing it through somebody who's helping us to see something ordinarily we don't see on our own. But every act of liter every work of literature requires an act of interpretation. You have to say... Because you just don't read it and leave it there. It's got a form, which means it means something. Yeah? It's an action. Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice, is a, it's an action. So when we read it, we don't just leave it there. We're forced to say, what does this action mean? Nobody's there saying this is what it means. So every work of literature we've read has returned us to the world, but it asks us to think about it. In Boethius, we're reading something that really takes the form, more, more expository form. Obviously, it's a drama. Lady Philosophy comes to him. But the, but the action unfolds um, through a mode of ideas. Okay? It's, a, it's an action. It's a drama. He, he's feeling sorry for himself, and she says, knock it off. But it's expository. It's abstract. When we read Dante, that wasn't the case. Virgil was constantly interpreting, Beatrice was constantly interpreting, um, but, but we, even if they're doing that, we still have to interpret very often what they're doing, what she's doing with Dante, what Virgil's doing with Dante. So literature asks, 
that, that we participate in the world, we immediately go back the way now in concrete lived experience while we're distancing ourselves from it, separating ourselves from it in order to try to grasp, understand what it means. So it is an easier read. It, it, um, it's much easier. It, it's, it's presented at a level of ideas. Um, Dante isn't. Shakespeare isn't. Chaucer won't be. Um, when we read them, <laughs> we, we have to work a little bit more. Now, having said that, we wouldn't be doing this if Boethius himself didn't ask things of. I mean, we still have to figure out what's he doing and, you know, why did I ask you guys to read this? Um, so we have some work ahead of us. But, uh, but it is. It is a much easier work. Um, I'm glad you said that. So. <laughs> we have a guest in our class tonight, huh? <laughs> One last thought, and this is very personal. Um, this is very personal. When I finished doing the some notes for tonight and was thinking about Boethius, I had this one thought, and it's not going to come out in the presentation, so I want to offer it now so that you guys have it. Um, I love Boethius. I'd forgotten um, when I was getting the study guide ready for you guys, I mentioned something to Suzanne, and she reminded me of something that I'd forgotten, completely forgotten. Um, our oldest son, Thomas, was a philosophy major. Um, he didn't complete the major, but he was a philosophy major. And he, I think I may have asked him, I'm not sure if I did. He may, he may have been required to take it at UD or at USF. I'm not, I, I don't remember. But in any case, he read it and said that that was his favorite work of philosophy, which is understandable to me because it's less discursive. You know, when you're reading St. Thomas or most other philosophers, you're reading ideas. If you read Aristotle's Politics or put any of them. The two people who, who differ from that whole tradition are Boethius and Plato. And you know if you've read Plato that you're reading dialogues. It's Socrates engaging with another person. Boethius knows that because he's read all the Socratic dialogues. He, he did all of Aristotle and, and uh, Plato. That's why he's so good. He chose to, to work in that Socratic method to, to present something through a dialogue. There's only two philosophers who have really done that. Plato and Boethius, all of their philosophers are discursive. So it was interesting f for me to think about what that meant, because I hadn't, I hadn't had that thought in 20 years, that it was his favorite book. Um, it's, a, it's an interesting book, um, and I want to leave you just with one thought before we, we start. It seems to me one of the things that's happening in Boethius that you won't get when you go through the book is this. You get, in Boethius, he's taking the best of Plato and the best of Aristotle and synthesizing them. It's an amazing work, because he takes two of the greatest philosophers who have ever lived and brings them together in this one small volume. So you're, you're actually having a special experience. The, the, the great wealth of the ancient world is being passed on to you in this little book in lots of ways. One of the things I don't think you'll see about it is this. 
you already know from your reading that it's about Boethius at a time when he's expecting to be executed. And he, and he knows he's going to his execution unjustly. Um, he's, he's, false accusations have been made against him. He's going to die um, and, and be accused of crimes that he didn't commit. So he's going to an unjust death, just like Socrates, just like Christ, just like Thomas More. Um, so he's facing his death. He's feeling sorry for himself. The world has wronged him. He's being mistreated. Um, philosophy is going to tell him, <laughs> stop your whining and toughen up here. Um, but one of the interesting things about this book is this. He's not only taking the best of um, Plato and Aristotle and assimilating it to a Christian understanding of the world, he's taking um, a spirit of, of um, <coughs> Stoicism, which was an ancient philosopher that became a major part of Christianity during the Middle Ages and passing it on. And I'm saying it for this reason. When we read the book, if we're reading it and genuinely participating in it, I think it's hard not to feel that this man's been treated unjustly and he shouldn't be suffering. He is. At, at one point in the, in the argument, um, Boyd is going to say, that's all well and good, I understand it, yes, but I'm still suffering. <laughs> you can give me all the best ideas in your mind, I'm still in agony. Answer that. She's going to answer it and go on. But it seems to me one of the things that um, to be aware of in this book is that there's a spirit of Stoicism that entered the Christian world. Um, we know facing, we know in our minds, facing any death, that there's a meaning to it even if we don't see it. And one of the things that we get from Christ is the Jews condemned him, the Gentiles condemned him. When he was put in that trial at the end of his life, that trial was a travesty of justice. What could God have said that would have answered any of the accusations against him? I hope everybody sees that. If he had said anything to vindicate himself, it would have meant nothing to them anyway. The Jews were determined to kill him. Pilate killed him because he was humiliated. There's, he, he was such a weak man, there was no way he would have done justice to him. I've got these two people, who should I release? I mean, you, in so many ways, he's just a coward. So, um, we know from Christ that, that we've been asked in some respects um, to know that we will suffer injustices and that there will be times when um, it may be important not to say something. I, I just want to leave it there. So there's a kind of stoic toughness that passes through this work because it's all argumentative. It's of the mind. And it's really important to do that. And I'll tell you what triggered this for me. Um, um, C.S. Lewis has been one of the great apologists for the 20th century. If you've read apologetics, you know that he and Chesterton are probably two of the greatest apologists of our time. Lewis um, met a woman late in his life um, who very much admired him in his work. He actually ended up marrying her against the advice of all of his friends. And I think we saw the movie ages ago. They, they haven't released it on DVD. I wanted to give it, but I don't think it's available. But at one point in the movie, she takes him apart. She says something to the effect, I'm going to get this wrong, but something to the effect like this. She said, 
you, you know, you're always in your head, but your feelings, your emotion, your suffering, and when Joy Davidson, I think is her name, when she died, Lewis's tribute to her was extraordinary. He said, she was my teacher, my mentor, my student, my guide, my, you know, he, he, he said she was everything to me. I think she opened worlds in him that he would have never had opened to him if he'd not been married. He had to learn to suffer. He listened. This this woman was extremely bright, a very very bright woman. But I think she was um, she confronted him pretty seriously in, on this matter of suffering. I mean, if, if you've read any of Lewis's books, you know that one of the books is called Problem of Pain. It's talking about suffering in Christianity. And Charles Williams, who was another great English writer then, and Lewis were dear, dear friends. And they met occasionally for a week, or I mean for lunch during the week, and I think in one of their meetings, Williams said to Lewis, sort of turning away in a wry way when you're being facetious with somebody, oh, you're one of those people who writes books about suffering, you know, as a sort of put down of Lewis, because it's one thing to talk about suffering in your head, it's a very different thing. Just remember that, that I, Boethius's Consolation is an extraordinary work. It, it's something, to me, it's one of the richest works in our tradition coming from the Middle Ages. But there is this strong Stoic spirit that runs through it um, be, because it's, it's offering itself as a form of medicine, a form of healing to somebody who's in real torment and what we're left with at the end is philosophy quiets his heart. Um, she makes it possible for him to endure the suffering that he's going to go through. But just remember you know, that, that this is an argument. It's, it's of the mind. The whole premise is if we, if we learn the truth of things, we can, we can live them in ways that will make our lives better, even with respect to the idea of suffering. Okay, with that said, unless somebody wants to ask a question on that. Or, <laughs> was that clear? Was that clear? <laughs> okay. Um, I love this book. It's a great book. Thomas said it was his favorite book. It was a good, it's just a, a really good book. It's a source of great strength. It's a source of consolation in time of real pain. Um, it makes us realize how important the mind is for understanding things because if we can understand something It makes it easier for us to go through Dealing with it than if we didn't understand it and if we're in the dark and confused and overwhelmed or, So Okay <clears throat> Could I tell you one thing about it? Sure well, No, no um, on the condition that you don't dismiss everybody after you do. <laughs> oh, oh, well, I won't do that. Um, every professional licensed counselor, every psychologist, every psychiatrist should read it. Uh, I was a professional counselor, psychological examiner for 25 years. And on page uh, 31, there are four words, five, nine words, that are the basis of what my counseling was for all those years. Nine words. They are... Good page, Marcy. It's 31. 31. Nothing is miserable except, except when you think so. Yes. 
Now, when patients came to me, I empowered them by telling them that, such as depression, that they owned their mind. No one turned the cogs in their mind but them. And it was this. They could determine in their own mind if they wanted to be depressed, because no one else was in their mind to do it. And that's what this is. Let's leave it there because we're going to get there. Because I'm going to I'm going to come to that because that's it's an important point in the argument as we go forward. So we're going to come. Yes, to, it is. Yeah. This is a this is a great book. <laughs> okay, a couple of, couple of things um, before we just very quick review of um, some of the things that I think were important to take out of the work that we did on Milton and Dunhill. Four things that for me are important for us to, to take forward. One is the notion of corruptions. Both, both writers faced tremendous corruptions. The, the church has never, ever been without corruption. If you go back to the early church, you know that the church was constantly um, embroiled in battles. Um, um, people were interpreting Christ in a great variety of ways, and, and um, the, the people who were teaching these things um, influence great crowds of people. So um, there were great divisions within the church that constantly had to be quieted. So the church has never been without corruptions, never been without problems. One of the things that's, I think that's important to take away from the work that we've done is this. Corruptions have always been there. Corruptions in themselves never, never can, never will justify changing the dogmas of the church. Um, what we see happening historically from the beginning of the church till now is that people are constantly trying to make Christ something he's not. That was true in the beginning, it's still true. Corruptions are always present, they're always there. The church is constantly being reformed, always. It's been an ongoing thing. But corruptions themselves can never justify um, changing the dogmas, altering them. Um, the, the church has um, stood on a creed, on a belief. It's that belief um, um, that's held true with Christ since its beginning. Um, and it's, and it's, it, will, um, go, it will going forward. Um, just a secondary note on this first one. Um, it's absolutely crucial for anybody holding religious beliefs to have a creed, a belief. Um, and I want to come at this a different way. Um, because lots of moderns say, do away with the creeds, creeds and everybody would be fine. If you, if, you do, if you do away with creeds and you say that everything is chaos, nothing means anything? If that's what you say, I mean, it was a little bit, I think, what you were saying last week. Then there's no adventure, no romance. If everything's chaotic, if everything is chaos and means nothing, there's nothing to lose. One thing is as good as another. A creed is absolutely essential for anybody wanting to have meaning in their life, wants to try to make sense of things. So um, the creed of the church is essential to its nature. It's, it speaks to Christ and what he did when he came here. Corruptions can't justify changing dogmas. The church, has, the church is constantly under um, construction. It always will be. It's a, it, even though its founder is Christ, it's, it's run by men. It, it's going to always be soiled. 
It, it, the soiling will not stop. If, if C.S. Lewis once said that, he said, <laughs> if, if you leave a church because you think it's too full of sinners and you want to go off and start a new church, as soon as you start it, it'll be in sin because you'll carry your own sins with it. Um, if sinning is the reason for leaving it, you, you will never find a church because you'll be taking yourself with it. Sin's a part of our condition. The, the great issue is what are the creeds of the church? What are its beliefs? Are they faithful to Christ? Um, second, I'm, there are too many differences to go into here, but one of the ones that I want to just um, just briefly recall. If you go over the work of uh, Milton and um, Dante, one of the things that you become aware of immediately is that Milton's attitude towards the world is very black and white, and more, more black than white. He, he emphasized the darkness of things more than the goodness. He took away the epic hero. Um, he, he, um, he did away with the epic heroes of the past. He saw the, the ancient gods as um, demons. The tendency in Milton, in keeping with his Protestant beliefs then, or the reformer beliefs at that point, was nature was corrupt. The effects of the fall were complete. Um, and it, that, that was one of the more important things shaping his way of looking at the world. That's what we see in Paradise Lost. Um, what we see in Dante is there is an evil at work. We've got hell. But there's a good far, far greater than any evil in the world. Dante did not believe that the effects of the fall were complete. Um, he believed that man is naturally good but wounded. So one of the fundamental differences between Dante and Milton, I just hold on to this when you go forward, remember that for Dante, the virtuous pagans are in hell. They're there not being punished because he's acknowledging there's still a goodness in the world. It's not completely fouled. Milton would not, Milt would have objected that profoundly because he believed the effects of the fall were complete. So Dante believed that there was this inherent good that was always there. You can't change an essence of God. Cannot. You can wound it, but you can't destroy it. So one of the fundamental differences between the two is a simple black-white and a much richer, more complex view in Dante in which good is far, far greater than evil. The greater emphasis of the journey through the Divine Comedy is towards the good. Far, far greater. Um, the Catholic Church, I said from the beginning, the Catholic means purity of spirit means um, purity of spirit cannot be racial, cannot be Russian, cannot be Italian, e even, even if our faith is vested in ethnic peoples, Italians, Jews, Turks, Ser Serbians, whatever. It cannot, it cannot be based on that. Purity of spirit is universal. It can't be ethnic, racial, um, national, can't be, can't be Anglican, can't be Episcopal, can't be Greek. It has to be universal. Um, we're all God's children. E even if we belong to different ethnic groups, as so many of us do, we, we acknowledge a faith that's greater than our ethnic identity. It's what ties us together. What makes it possible for people of different ethnic groups to get along. One of the things that I, I mean, coming into, I think I told you this story because it troubled me when I left Orthodoxy and one of my friends who was Catholic said, because I, I said, what do you do with this when you're, you know, you're leaving a, um, an ethnic world? And he said, it's a little bit like comparing apple and oranges. I think I told you that story. 
because for him they weren't the same. In Greek Orthodoxy, they are. You can't separate your faith from your ethnic beliefs. They're one. Um, it, you know, Shakespeare wrote this play, Romeo and Juliet, um, that's dealing almost with something like that. Americans adapted that play and um, what's that? West Side West Story. Sorry? West Side, West Side Story. Story. West Side Story, good, thanks, I forgot. You all know this, the music of West Side Story because you've got Italians and Irish? Puerto Ricans. No, Puerto, Puerto Ricans and, and non-Puerto Ricans. <laughs> non Ricans. You've got two different ethnic groups ready to kill each other. And I, if I remember correctly, they're Catholic, both of them. It, it, I mean, it's a wonderful expression of the way in which people came to America to put away those ethnic differences and came here and killed each other. I mean, the early generations in America are, are, are long tales of people from different ethnic groups killing each other. Mm -hmm. Truly. Catholicism means whatever our ethnic differences, there's something that unites us. Catholic means universal. It's everybody. Um, um, Dante is writing as a Catholic when he writes the Commedia. And the last one is this notion of infallibility. I know that that's a difficulty for lots of people, but I want to just leave you with this one thought about it, too. If you go back over the history of the church, we, we, you can't read the history without being aware that the church was in danger forever. On all sides, people were claiming that Christ was one thing and not another. It was all God or all man. Or, um, and then carry it forward to the Reformation where the Eucharist is done away with, the sacraments are done away with, I mean, radical changes take place. When um, Christ gave Peter the keys and said, who you loosen, who you, you know, and in that amazing scene that we looked at together when he said, who do people say I am? And it was only Peter who said, you're the Christ. Christ is vesting Peter with an extraordinary power. Take that power away and the church will be powerless to say no to heresies. Um, the Pope, I, I don't know the I, I don't know the history of the church that well. I know there have been abuses of the church. They don't surprise me, but and I, I myself don't know if there were instances of, of, of popes um, using their office to speak from the chair officially. But the infallibility is supposed to be connected with doctrinal matters of dogma and so it's rarely it's rarely used but if you think about what he's what the pope is facing what christ did when he founded the church it's it seems to me it's hard not to be aware of how important it is for the church to have that authority because if it doesn't the church won't stand there's there's too much constantly working to take it down so those to me are some of the more important things it seems to me to come out of the work that we've done on Milton and uh, Dante okay I think they're important truths that are at the center of our faith that, um, and I'm not sure that we're always as aware of them as we should be um, doing this course has certainly made me more aware of them okay Boethius I can't go into the background very well because I'm not a historian, but I can I can tell you a couple of things that are important for you to be aware of. Remember, when we did the work on Milton and Dante, we went back to the collapse of Rome in the 5th century. 
Um, Boethius was, Boethius was born 480 and died 524. Rome was sacked twice in the 5th century, in the 450s, somewhere in there, twice, and was finally destroyed um, by the um, tribes coming down from the north, the Huns and the Visigoths and um, other tribes. Um, at the time that Boethius is writing, the church has been in turmoil. Um, it's, it's coming out of a long period of, de of decay and decline, um, but it's still the center of Christendom. And in terms of the Christian world, there are a number of sees that have greater power than others. Two of the more important ones were in Rome, and the other one was in Constantinople. One, one Western, one Eastern. The Aryan conflict was still fresh. The church was debating about it. As a, just a brief observation here, one of the tendencies of the Eastern world, the Orthodox world, from the beginning, has been um, otherworldly. Their first, I mean, the Aryan um, heresy comes out of the East. Lots of them do, monarchialism and others come out of the East, because their tendency is to want to protect the absolute power of the Father. And that played out in their way of understanding Christ. So the Aryan controversy is still somewhat fresh. People are divided on it, they're quarreling about it. Um, Italy's under the rule of a king at this point, um, Theodoric. Rome has never been at ease with imperial powers, kings. You, you know that they wanted to kill Caesar. They, the Roman Republic is, by nature, is, runs contrary to the idea that one man could rule, but Theodoric is, is a king right now, ruling. There were strains between the king and the Senate, and some of the senators were conspiring against him. And um, Theodoric had one of them exiled. The man that was exiled, um, wait, let me go back. Boethius was a great defender of the Senate because he believed in Republican power. He never did anything to challenge the king. I mean, the, the king had no reason for do, um, being aggressive with him or doing anything unjust to him at all. Um, um, he defended the Senate, though, in its powers. But when this one man was exiled, he accused Boethius of betraying the king, um, and letters were forged to support it. And another, and a couple of other people came forward to accuse him at the same time too. And you you know that from the book because in the in one of the books we read here, I think in the, I can't remember the first or second book when he's giving an account of what happened to him, he says that one of his great loves was the Senate. He defended it. Um, he was innocent. He did everything he could to protect it, and yet the Senate turned on him when the, when the accusations came in, they supported ex in this exactly the same way the bishops did with Thomas More. Exactly the same way. When this guy turned on him and, and it singled Boethius out, the Senate turned on him. Be because at that point, everybody's lives were at risk. We've seen that before, again and again and again. Um, so... He was imprisoned and accused of treason. So he's in jail now, towards the end of his life, awaiting execution um, for a crime he never committed. He was a great scholar, a lover of philosophy. He, he read extensively. He, he did one of the most important treatises on the Trinity 
It's ever been written. He wanted to translate Plato and Aristotle, but he, but he couldn't do it. So the story, I mean, as we get it, is that while he's in jail, he writes the consolation. So this is not just an abstract treatise to console people. It's, it's an effort to make real something that he believed in his bones, that a, that a man without a true philosophy was a man adrift. When a man faced difficulties, he got this from Plato, he got this from Aristotle, he got it from Christ. If a man's adrift and he's going to go through suffering, what his beliefs are are really important because they're going to be the only thing he can hold on to at that point. When everything else is taken away, what do you have? So this is not just a philosophic treatise the way so many philosophic treatises are. This is, this is an actual treatise because it really speaks, it's a, it's, it's a synthesis of so many traditions that are coming together in him in the way that only a really brilliant man can do, but it's also personal. It's grounded in a real fact. He's going to be executed. So that's that's the background of it. The 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 major themes of the work are these, and it's important to see these. The the great thing theme, as you already know, is um, has to do with justice. He inherited this from the pagan world, from Plato and Aristotle. He also inherited it from Christianity. If if Christ didn't if if there was no justice in Christ going to the cross, then Christ didn't answer our sins. Remember that line. Um, if you look at the if you look at the nature assumed, no man was more justly punished because he took on our flesh. If you look at the person who assumed that nature, no act was more unjust. So justice is something right at the center of our faith. We know that from our faith. You you cannot miss it in Dante. People are in hell because of a matter of justice. People are in, on purgatory because of an issue of justice. The difference between them is they want mercy and they're, they're doing everything they can to pull justice and mercy together. So this great theme of justice, it's the Job story. How can God, how can a, how can a God who made a good world allow injustice? How can God allow evil in the world? Why, why do good people suffer? More, why do good people why do good people suffer, <coughs> and why are evil people rewarded? Where's there any justice in that? That's the great thing. Um, it goes back to the Job story, but it deepens, it seems to me, in Christianity because we we've, we've got a God who was um, killed for a question of justice. The second major theme is the nature. The nature of man. Can everybody hear me okay? Yeah. yeah. The nature of man. And early on in the in the drama, I'm gonna call it a drama. Early on in the drama, um, Consolation will say to Boethius, the reason you're grieving the way you do is because you forgot your nature. What's your nature? Who are you? So this whole question of nature is really important, our human nature. At one point, Boethius is going to, in these poems that he, you know, that he, he writes, he's going to say, God made everything in order. There's an order to everything. Everything goes to its place. Drop a stone, it'll fall. Light a fire, it will rise. I mean, there's a nature to things. 
The one exception seems to be man. Everything seems to follow its nature except this human being who doesn't seem to fit because he's all over the place doing things he shouldn't do. It's as if there's no rule for him. So this question about what our nature is is really serious because philosophy says you're only grieving the way you are because you forgot, you've forgotten your nature. If you remember your nature you'll find it much harder to grieve. So who are we? Who are we? Um, why is justice real for us when it's not for the rest of creation? A tree, a river, a flower, a dog. Um, can we really deal with this question of justice and why some people suffer and some people don't, why evil men are rewarded and just people punished? if we don't come to terms with this question of our nature, and, it, and for me it's a more serious question today because most modern philosophies deny that we have a nature. If we don't have a nature, and how does Marcy even say to somebody who's in depression, you know you're depressed but don't forget that you have some control in your own mind. Um, there are things you can do about this. Um, you don't have to give in to this. I mean, I'm, I want to come back to that because I've got some questions about that I want to look at with you. But we have a nature. How can we deal with a question of suffering or pain if we don't understand our nature? Third one, it's all going to come down to a question of knowledge. The last two books, to me, are, are extraordinary. Um, we have to wait to get there. But, but Lady Philosophy is maintaining that Boethius will never stop whining if he first doesn't learn his nature, and second, if he doesn't really come to understand the nature of knowledge itself, because it's it's our capacity to know that distinguishes our nature that separates us from the rest of creation. And um, early on, she's going to say, one of the reasons, we'll get to it, one of the reasons you're suffering is um, um, because you're in a condition of amnesia. You've forgotten yourself. Now, I think when we read that in the book, we just sort of treat it metaphorically. She's saying the problem with you is you've got amnesia. You've forgotten who you are. You've forgotten your nature. You've forgotten who you are. Except, amnesia doesn't mean... Amnesia has a deeper meaning in the book than amnesia, I think, for most of us. To go back for a minute, Plato believed, this is his argument, that um, all knowledge was a form of recollection. This is absolutely crucial for Plato. And it's one of the major dividing points between Plato and Aristotle. Plato said all knowledge, all knowledge is a form of recollection. This so goes to the Divine Comedy and what we were doing up the Purgatory. All knowledge is a form of recollection. Um, the soul was created in eternity. It has had an immediate grasp of the eternal goods, what he called the forms, the forms, when he was born, in a sense, he died to that world, entered this world, and in his subconscious, this is Raphael and Milman, I hope you're picking this up. When he was born into this world, he has a recollection of all those forms he once knew in the other world, because the soul's immortal. The problem for Plato is how do we trigger the mind to help the mind recover what, it, what he says we already know. For Plato, it takes a good guide to help somebody learn as a teacher to learn to recover what you lost. Okay? 
Now, I, I don't want to go into this because this is a whole other, I mean, this is a, a real problem in philosophy, but just to, to sketch that out. But I do want to say this to help make sense of it in terms of what we've done together in this group. Remember when we went up the Purgatorio, one of the things that I was saying is the, the struggle to, re, to go up Purgatory, to return to God, was partly an effort to recover what was lost. Eden is behind us. So even if you're not a Platonist, Eden is behind us. Jung would maintain, all of us have this collective unconscious that every one of us carries this inherent sense of something lost that we once have. So our whole life is an attempt to recover something lost. Okay, so I'm trying. I'm saying that because I don't want this to seem so strange. Anamnesis. Um, to recover, to go back, to recover what what we once had. Okay. There are lots of people, philosophers, psychologists, who believe these things are deep seated in us. They go back. They go back before our traumas. They have to do with the immortal nature of the soul itself. So the word anamnesis means to recollect, to recover what we once knew. Oh, he said that was different from Aristotle in, in all way. Here, um, thanks for doing that, Fred. I can't go into it, but I'm so glad. Aristotle fundamentally disagrees with Plato on this issue. Aristotle says that um, we don't know by recollection, we don't know the forms. Um, so knowledge is an attempt to recover them, what we already have within us innately, these innate ideas or forms. Aristotle believed that the human consciousness was like a tablet, tabula rasa. And he said that this is a fundamental, Plato begins in his head, Aristotle in his senses. Aristotle says nothing, this is fundamental to Christian philosophy through the Middle Ages, and it's one of the differences between philosophers on this issue. Aristotle said, nothing gets in the head, nothing gets in the head except through the senses. We are corporeal creatures. Um, so what our senses give to us, our mind abstracts, and um, we can, through a process of abstraction, the mind can know the essences or forms of the, the things that are presented to us through our senses. So for Aristotle, knowledge is not a form of recollection. I'm doing this here because this is a major line of Lady Philosophy's argument with Boethius. She says, you've got amnesia, we've got to help you recover some sense of yourself, who you are, because you've lost it. You once knew this as a child, you grew up learning from me, now you've got to recover what you've lost. But clearly for her it means more than just that. It, it, in the Platonic sense it means in human consciousness, we, we have some innate grasp of eternal things because our souls are immortal. We once knew them. By the way, just to, to make this a little bit clearer, Plato believed in the immortality of the soul and he believed in reincarnation. So the soul will go back. It's immortal. Christians don't. We believe the soul's immortal, but it's created and we will reach an end. We'll either go, return to God or be separated from him. But Plato came up with that theory because he believed the soul was immortal, and to make sense of that, he came up with this theory of recollection that we've all known it. We were in eternity. We had an experience of this. We carried into this world. 
William Wordsworth's poems, Intimations of Immortality, Trailing Clouds of Glory as We Come, Wordsworth believed that when we were born into this world, we're trailing clouds of glory, that we once had these things. He's very platonic in that poem, in that sense. So, anamnesis, um, recalling what we once knew. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. Do this in memory of me. I hope everybody's hearing that. Do this in memory of me. I think the Greek, I think the Greek is anaphora. Do this in memory of me. Um, remember, anamnesis, um, to know back, to recollect what we once have. What's the root of that? Um, mimosine? You remember that from our yeah. from our work in the Iliad? Mimosine, memory, memory. Um, to recall what we once knew. The root of that is the same root for mimosine. Remember, all the ancient epics begin with a with the poet invoking the goddess Mimosine, the, the cosmic memory. She who's known everything before. The word anaphora, again. Back, Anna, back. Fora, um, bearer, to bear back. I think that's the word Christ used, in the, or the Greek translation. Do this in memory of me. Anaphora means to carry back. Um, in the Roman church, we, we call that part of the Mass... Um, the Eucharistic celebration. I think it's the holy, the canon, I think we call it the, the Eucharist. The, the Greek Orthodox Church, the Orthodox Church calls it anaphora, the carrying back, do this in memory, that, the, that we go back to be with Christ, one with him, and carry him forward, carry him back and forward. We are back with him in that moment. So when we receive the Eucharist, when we receive the Eucharist, we were we are being reunited with God. We're going back to be with Him. It's not just in our minds. In the Mass for the Orthodox and Catholic worlds, um, the real presence exists for both of them. When you take the Eucharist, you're receiving Christ in um, um, in His divinity and physically as a human. So this whole theme of, of the nature of knowledge is not a small one for um, Boethius. Um, the argument in the beginning is Boethius has got to learn to recover some sense of who he was. He's, he's, he's got to recollect to go back to recover what he's lost right now. And um, it, it has that double meaning. It means re re recalling, but it also means to bear back. The word, by the way, Christopher. It's Christ bearer. Christ bearer. Pharos. Pharos. Mm -hmm. Anna, back, Pharos. To carry back. So when Christ said, do this in memory, he's saying, carry back, go back with him, to be with him. That, that means, clearly, not just in our time, in his time, 
to be with. That's why I've said, you know, when we've talked about it, remember, when we started doing Elliot, where are we when we take the Eucharist? Mm-hmm. You know, when we're walking out the door in the parking lot, where are we? Because when you take the Eucharist, we're in this strange place. We're here in time and space as we know it, but if we believe it, we're in some place where we can't identify. It's hard to describe it. So there's this whole dimension of 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 standing in the world in a different way according to the way we know. In the modern world, the modern world tends to be empiricist. We can't know anything more than our senses. What's here? Boethi was saying nonsense. There's so much more going on in knowledge. The problem with Boethi, the lady philosophy, the problem with Boethi is, is he's got to recover this larger sense of who he is and the way he stands in the world. And and he won't be able to do that unless he recovers a proper sense of knowledge. So the last two books in the Constellation are going to deal with ways of knowing. Okay. And they, they carry both of those meanings. I mean, it's important to be aware of both of those meanings. Okay, just quick overview, okay? Let me stop. Any On the surface, it just looks like a dialogue. There's a lot more going on. This man's dying. I, I can't read it. Here's me. I can't read it without thinking. Because he's saying, I don't want to give away the argument. I don't want to give it. I can't read it. I can't read it without thinking, dust to dust. Ash Wednesday. From dust you came to dust you How many of us carry that with us when we're feeling sorry for ourselves? When somebody's done something wrong that upsets us or, or makes us feel sorry for ourselves? I don't deserve this. You know, we get it. Um, how many of us remember then, dust to dust? So, this this is a drama. It's a real drama. I mean, he's going to die. He knows it. But this engagement with philosophy is an is an attempt to answer everything that we deal with in the world, everything that we deal with in the world, and whether we're standing with it in the right way or not. Because if we're not, it, it's going to hurt us. Are we ready for death, dust to dust? Are we really looking at the world the way we should? So on the surface, it just looks like an easy, you know, read. It's a, it is, but there's a lot going on in this story. So, so quick question. I'm sorry, go ahead. So, so when late philosophy comes in and runs off abuses, is that, an, is that a Plato versus Aristotle thing? I think it's Plato. I, I think it's... It, it's good, good for you. I mean, is it, I mean, is it, is it the muses that's clouding his ability mm-hmm. to remember who he is? Yeah, but let me try to enlarge on that for a second because it's a good question. Um, Aristotle is more at home with the body, far more than Plato. Plato, if you, if you read the Republic and other dialogues, you realize that he, he gave a much greater importance to the mind over the body. Um, we've talked about this in Milton, and that one of the differences in, between the Protestant and Catholic minds. Um, Plato was um, very guarded and very critical of poetry. The Republic is his critique of Homer, because um, he sees Achilles and Odysseus as being bad examples for men. For him, the good example for men is Socrates, because Socrates is a virtuous man making arguments in his head. 
um, he thinks Odysseus is off having an affair with Calypso. That one of the problems with the, Iliad, the, the Homeric world is that, is that the heroes live too much in their body. Achilles blows up. Plato thinks that's bad. He, 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 um, he thinks that hero needs to be replaced by a philosopher. So it's not it's not Plato against the Aristotle, although in, at some remove it is. It's really Plato in his attitude towards poetry and the emotions, because Plato really believed that it was crucial that you that the mind take control of the body, that it was superior to. He looked down on the body. We thought that the the soul was immortal; it would leave the body, you know, it would go to the other world. So he really frowned on poetry a lot. Um, so it's not Aristotle, but insofar as Aristotle was more hospitable to poetry, you could at some point you could come to that same conclusion. Jeannie, did you have a question? I just wondered if um, someone studying philosophy in a secular university would read Boethius. Do you know? Probably, the, my, I mean, I can't say, I can't but I would say the chances would be next to nothing. No, truly, if you look at, um, if you look at the secular university, if you look at, it's interesting, if, um, if you look at the sheet, um, you just got the bibliography, or the, bibliar the, bio the biography, the reference sheet, look at that sheet and you'll see a proportionate increase from ancient times to modern times. Marcy's, you know, um, put together this long list. If you look at it, moderns out, outnumber the ancients by a thousand to one. Um, philosophers come a dime a dozen. Now, here, Gene, think about this. If you're a modern, if you're a modern and you're going to a university, the typical attitude of a modern is, what's the point of studying Plato and Aristotle because we've outdated them? Dead white nails? Or Aristotle, or sorry, Saint Augustine, or Thomas. Nobody, nobody reads those men today. But if you look at Marcy's list, you'll see they would be overwhelmed with modern readings. Mm -hmm. um, so the likelihood, that, and what's sad to me, I mean, I know this from firsthand experiences. If you if you go to a secular university and you're teaching there, philosopher, this philosophers teaching in some sense are not true philosophers, at least not in the Platonic Aristotelian sense. They are not men and women who devote their lives to philosophy to live it and to take to undertake the discipline of doing it that Plato would have said is essential. They are men who live, or women, who live largely in their heads. Um, and for them, real philosophy would begin with the sciences. They'd begin with Descartes and Kant and move forward. So, Lots of Catholic universities, sadly, really good Catholic universities would, there's no way you could get through them without reading Plato and Aristotle and Augustine and Thomas and, and, and go forward. Descartes, Kant, Wittgenstein, I mean, whoever the modern is you're going to read. There's no way you'd go to a Catholic university and not come out with some sense of the whole tradition, ancient and modern. I, I have a question. So, um, Saint John Paul the Great, he would he would often go to like hospitals and whatever, and he would emphasize the grace and suffering. Yeah. And I have a 
you know, I've got think about the first book, but is there any point in here where they turn it around and say, not only not only can you overcome your suffering, but you can also, in a, in a Catholic sense, you can get graces from it for others and make the whole world better. Hold on to that question, but, can you? Okay. It's one of the reasons I said what I did a while ago, but I, I just, what I'd like to do, because it's such a good question, is hold off to the end and see what you, how you would answer it when we've gone through it. Okay, let's 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 go through some of the book. This is real. I'm, Mary, I'm so glad you asked that question. Hold, I really hold on to it because it's such a good question. This partly gives it away, but I don't want to go there. I want to wait. When when uh, Lady Flossy appears to Boethius, you, you know immediately she says to those whores, those sluts, get out of here, and she sends literature packing, and um, she she says this is a this is a wonderful pedagogy because she says at the beginning. You're in a state of amnesia. You don't you don't even know who you are right now and what you've lost, and you'll never be able to answer this if you don't recover yourself. So she presents herself as a doctor healing. And she says that to begin, <coughs> because of your condition, we've got to go very slowly. So she says, I'm only going to use this very mild medicine to begin with. And when you're when you get stronger, I'll give you the hard stuff. Yeah, right. <laughs> so but I don't. So I mean, in a way, that answers. I don't want to go there. Hold on, because it's too good a question. Um, let's let's go. Let's do, let's go through some of the book. You all know that it's done in a form of prosy meter. It alternates. Thanks, Doug. It alternates between um, prose and verses. Um, and we'll let's wait for a while to talk about that. But since she's um, banished the muses. What are we to make of this? The fact that that the prose is interrupted constantly by these little poetic sections, these sections that are presented in poetry. Um, book one opens with with Boethius grieving a clearly. Boy, you guys are amazing. Clearly, literally, we're supposed to think. This is a drama. Boethius is grieving and Lady Philosophy comes. It seems to me one of the ways in which we can look at that is at any... This is going to be a stretch. I don't want to get into it, but just allow it for a minute, okay? At any point when we're suffering, in a modern world that doesn't believe in God, we're absolutely alone. If we've been made in the image of God, if we have, the, the remember, the, the Naturalite Christiana animus, the, the naturally Christian soul. Every human being has an image of Christ in him. That was one of the truths from C.S. Lewis's To We Have Faces. Um, the naturalite Christiana animus, the, the naturally Christian soul. Those of you who did To We Have Faces, remember that psyche is an image of Christ in Oriol. That's what that story is about. 
every person has Christ imprinted. He can't escape it. He's made by God. At any moment when we're suffering, when we feel most alone, closed off from the world, can we ever exist in that moment without some light coming through to us? Because one way of reading this is literally he's suffering and lady philosophy comes to him. Another is that in those moments of suffering, a light comes. It's there. Will we hear? Will we be open? Is there some? Is there a grace there offered to us? Okay. So he's grieving. I who once wrote songs with joyful zeal and driven by grief to enter a weeping mode, see the muses, cheeks all torn, dictate and wet my face with elegiac verse. <laughs> Hopkins would have had hard things to say. That is, I think one of, the, one of the temptations for all of us is when we're grieving, we say, oh, what a sensitive soul I am. I'm, I'm capable of feeling all these things. I'm so sensitive. Um, and driven by grief. That is, he's indulging himself. He's, he's, he's describing his grief right now. See the muses, cheeks all torn, dictate and wet my face with elegiac verse. Oh, you can... How exquisite my poetry right now. I'm going to, you know... I mean, anyway, part of this is sort of comic. I know that this is painful, but I, I think it's important for us to step outside. There are two Boethius, just like there are two Dantes. Right? There's Dante the journeyer, but there's Dante the poet because the poet has already taken the journey. He's sitting at home writing about what, he, what happened. Same here. There's a writer, Boethius. There's also the natural Boethius. I think it's important to keep a sense of the ironies here that Boethius is the writer, is aware of this grieving person. They were all the glory of my happy youth, and still they comfort me in hapless age. Old age came suddenly by suffering sped, and grief then bade her go. He goes on. And I, a worm, out bone bag hung with flesh. Death would be a blessing if it spared. <laughs> Somebody kill me, please. <laughs> suddenly, philosophy arrives, and the description of her is really it's a little bit like Virgil arriving for Dante. Um, on the next page, her eyes burning and keyed beyond the usual power of men. She was so full of years that I could hardly think of her as of my own generation, and yet she possessed a vivid color and undiminished vigor. It was difficult to be sure of her height, for sometimes she was of average human size, while at other times she seemed to touch the very sky with the top of her head. And when she lifted herself even higher, she pierced it and was lost to human sight. Her clothes were made of imperishable material, of the finest thread woven with the most delicate skill. Later, she told me that she'd made them with her own hands. Their splendor, however, was obscured by a kind of film as of long neglect. Remember when Virgil first appeared, the description of him was um, a voice grown faint from neglect. <clears throat> we will learn later that she educated um, Boethius but that her, her, in her early period, um, she was taken over by the uh, Epicureans, the Stoics, the, the materialist philosophers, and they tore her gown um, because they attempted to replace real philosophy with false substitutions. So we can read this literally, but I think it's also important to think at some 
metaphorical level, this is the spirit of truth speaking to him. And in that sense, she is larger than sky and very ordinary, both. Um, um, page seven. In the same way the clouds of my grief dissolved and I drank in the light. With my thoughts recollected, I turned to examine the face of my physician. I turned my eyes and fixed my gaze upon her and saw it was my nurse in whose house I'd been cared for since my youth. Philosophy. I asked her why she'd come down from the heights of heaven to my lonely place of banishment. Um, is it to suffer false accusations along with me, I asked. Why, my child, she replied, should I desert you? Why should I not share your labor and the burdens you have been saddled with because of the hatred of my name? This is one of the major themes. He is where he is because he attempted to speak the truth when the truth was hated. So he's like Socrates, he's like Christ. She's the light that formed his mind. It's what he wanted to live for, it's what he did. Now he's being persecuted for it. So the identity between the two is um, is close. And then, and then in Plato's own lifetime, his master Socrates was unjustly put to death. A victorious death won with me at his side. After that, the mobs of Epicureans and Stoics and the others each did all they could to seize for themselves. He describes that moment when he tried to replace real philosophy. If you go back to Marcy's sheet. I mean, one of the questions that we have to ask is there's this rich tradition of philosophy in the West how healthy is it through the centuries Middle Ages early modernity even the modern world um, she presents herself as being neglected worn um, how seriously do we take philosophy in the modern world um, on, on page 9 this is a metaphor we're going to get in Chaucer when we read Chaucer do you understand that she went on and have my words penetrated in mine are you really listening to me um, one of the problems with you is that you, um, she says above on page 9 <coughs> in the poem if first you rid yourself of hope and fear you have disarmed the tyrant's wrath but whosoever quakes in fear or hope drifting and losing mastery has cast away his shield, has left his place, and binds the chain with which he will be bound. This is strict Stoicism, as nearly as I can read it. Have any, have any hope or fear in your soul? You've already set yourself up. Because what's going to happen when you hope for something and it doesn't come? You're going to be sad, you're going to be downcast, you're going to feel sorry for yourself. So this is the Stoic aspect of the spirit that she's bringing to him. Um, do you understand that she went on and have my words penetrated? Are you listening? Or are you like the proverbial donkey, deaf to the lyre? It's interesting that she would use the lyre, which is associated with poetry, um, the beauty of music. Um, in the next couple of pages, he recalls what had happened, um, the circumstances that led to his imprisonment. 12 and 13 go into details. I, I, I don't want to go into them because 
you should all, you've already read them, but. Um, on page 18, in your present state of mind, while this great tumult of emotion has fallen upon you and you're torn this way and that by alternating fits of grief, wrath and anguish, it's hardly time for the more powerful remedies. I will use gentler message, medicines. It is as you've become swollen and callous under the influence of these certain passions. The problem is, this is very platonic, you're too susceptible to your emotions. Get a hold of yourself, um, control yourself right now. Um, at the top of 19, will you first then let me discover your state of mind and test it with a few simple questions? That way I can discover the best method of curing you. So she probes him. Psychological and, examination right yes, there. Yes, yes. And um, she says, 19, well, do you know the source from which all things come? She just said, do you know your nature? Do you remember your nature? Do you know the nature of things? <coughs> Sorry, I've got this. Um, bottom of 19. <coughs> Sir, do you have a, oh, can you, can you, sorry. Bottom of 19, she says, um, so tell me, do you remember what is the end and purpose of things and the goal to which the whole of nature is directed? I did hear it once, I said, but my memory has been blunted by grief. Here it is. It's memory the way back. His passions are in the way. But she's asking him, do you, do you remember the, do you remember the nature of things and the end um, for which you were created? And let me stop for that because think about moderns today who have no sense that there's a nature to things or that there's an end to things. If, if there's no end, why live? I mean, why are we here? If, you, if any of us does suffer, can we deal with that suffering well if we don't understand our end, how suffering fits into it? Thanks. Um, so tell me, do you remember what is the end and purpose of things and the goal to which the whole of nature is directed? I did hear it once, but my memory has been blunted by grief. Well, do you know the source from which all things come? Yes, I replied, it's God. How can it be then that you know the beginning of things, but you don't know their end? The peculiarity of these disturbances is that they have just enough power to move a man from his usual position, but can't quite throw him over and totally uproot him. <clears throat> I want you to answer this too. Do you remember that you are a man? I think all this must sound silly, but it's so true. Why shouldn't I? I said, can you then tell me what man is? Are you asking me if I know whether a man is a rational mortal animal, I do know it, and I acknowledge that it's what I am. Are you sure you're not something more? Quite sure. Now I know the other cause, or rather the major cause of your illness. You've forgotten your true nature. So, there's no way for him to come to terms with his suffering if he doesn't understand these more basic questions. Who is he? By the way, if any of you have read King Lear or mm -hmm. Shakespeare's, you, I mean, you can't read Shakespeare without finding Aristotle and Plato and Boethus. These are the questions that perturb Lear. Twenty-one. 
If you desire to look on truth and follow the path with unswerving course, rid yourself of joy and fear, put hope to flight and banish grief. The mind is clouded and bound in chains where these hold sway. Let me stop. I, I hope the stoic aspect of this is becoming clear, right? The answer to your problems is get rid of your emotions, right? Plain and simple, fear, joy, hope. Um, be, I mean, the, you all know you all know what Stoicism is. The ancient philosophy was the um, the belief that the, the 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 root of all problems was man's emotional life. Um, if you could get rid of your emotions, you wouldn't be susceptible to them. You would be above them. Joy, hope, get rid of those. Be tough. And there's there's a very there's a I think there's a very strong spirit of Stoicism running in the British character. Stiff upper lip. You know, you don't let things get you down, tough it out. Um, this is, I mean, this is the source. It, it goes back to the Stoics and it runs through the Christian Middle Ages. It's, it's very present here. Page 22. Book 2 is devoted largely to making clear to Boethius that He's put too much faith in fortune, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I want to read this, and then I want to stop for a minute because it seems to me this is a, a, a pivotal point early in the book. She says on, on 22, if I fully diagnose the cause and nature of your condition, you are wasting away and pining and longing for your former good fortune. It is the loss of this which, as your imagination works upon you, has so corrupted your mind. I know the many disguises of that monster fortune and the extent to which she seduces with friendship. And she's going to go on and say repeatedly, she's a bitch, she's fickle, you can't trust her, the minute you trust her she'll let you down. Um, the fault isn't with fortune, it's with you for being stupid enough to trust her. Mm -hmm. Let me stop for a minute, because for those of you who have got through this, define fortune as lady philosopher puts her. Can you? Because this is this is the culprit at this point in the story. Can anybody? It's sort of like good luck. Bad luck. Say? Bad luck. Okay, good. That which happens to you which you don't have control over. You don't know when it's coming. Right. But it's there. Fate, maybe? I think it's both. I mean, it's it's a combination of it's good for it, bad. It means whatever. I mean, I think it's whatever happens. What's the problem then? Changes. You get you get used to it being one way and think that if it's good, that's what it should be. And then when you get hit with the other side of it, sorry, it's a thermal. Yeah, yeah. I, th I think I think you're just. So does the problem lie in fortune or with man? Man. Why? Expectations. Sorry? Expectations. Yeah, desires. I mean, I thought you were getting, you get comfortable with them and think, you know. Mm -hmm. I think there are all sorts of problems with it. If you've had good fortune and you get used to it, you think you deserve it. If it's taken away, you get really, you know. So, what is fortune? And I'm asking this because she allegor Boethius allegorizes it. Lady Philosophy does here. She can't, it's a person. It was a great theme through the late Middle Ages. 
and Chaucer's going to deal with it a lot. He's going to use the word. So does Shakespeare. The Renaissance people were full of it. So my question, what exactly is fortune? Is it a thing? Is it a person? There's an implicit relationship between the contingency or chance character of the world. Mm -hmm. Things are contingent. We can't, I mean, I thought your description was right on. We can't control them. But so often with the use of our mind, let's say, let's say we invest or we have a job or do something with, and it's as if we have mastery over our life. So we tend to objectify this thing and call it fortune. But in truth, it's, it's really the contingent nature of the world. Things are always changing. They're ephemeral. They, they're not lasting. And yet, there's, there's something in us, in the attitude of mind, that treats it as if we've got control over it, like it's a thing. And we, I've got a job. I've got money. I've got fame. You know, these are going to be the... When we're going to learn that... We may have them at one point and not have them at another. So just, just when we think our life is settled because we have all this wealth, it's one of our concerns, major concern. We think we've, we think we've mastered nature. What's the problem? Not concrete. We don't have to. We don't have to. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> because the world is contingent and the danger for us is getting seduced by it and thinking that we do without realizing what the effect is on us. So right now she's raising these questions and she does it in terms of for, fortune, but I just want to be clear that it's allegorized here, but I think I think it, it it's a word that refers to the contingent temporal, ephemeral, mutable character of the world. But in relation to us, because we respond to the world thinking we've got some mastery over it. You know, we're a great athlete. We think we're on top of the world. And five years later, we broke a knee. And I mean, think about athletes who, I'm not kidding. Think about athletes who vest, you know, you get million dollars, eight, ten million dollars a year. And you hear these stories, five years later, they're in debt. Yeah. So just when people think, I mean, you're, Everything under control. Let me let me let me editorialize editorialize here for a second. Um, she's she's going to go into this more deeply, <laughs> and maybe I should just speak for myself. the The danger is if we think we have certain gifts. You know, I'm smart. I'm industrious, or I work harder. Whatever it is. We, we, we project that onto the world, and we, we, so we set up this thing, good fortune, got things under control. Um, we can lose somebody. We discover we've got cancer. I mean, whatever it is, a, a moment will come when we think we've got everything lined up, and then suddenly something happens, and it's like a rug has been pulled out, yes. and we realize just where we thought we had mastery or control or... So there's... What, what allegorically what this is referring to is this relationship between the human and the contingent character of life. You know, that we, that we, we have to, we come into the world with nothing, we have to try to make a living, we have to try to make do, but there are dangers for us in the way that we approach it. And she's making, she's making all of this clear right now. 
let's. I want to. I want to get through some of these. Um, page twenty-six. Um, he's reaching a point. Um, She reaches a point where she says, the real problem with you is you think you've been banished. Or no, yeah, she says you think you've been banished. The problem with you is that it's not you who've been banished. It's that you, you've lost your way. Take, go back to 16 just for a second. I want to pick that up. At the bottom of 16. Um, she arrived at the cell and saw his face tear-stained. He's grieving. He's angry. His emotions are overwhelming him. She says, however, it's not simply a case of your having been banished from your home, because remember, he's lost everything. She says, you have wandered away yourself, or as if you prefer to be thought of as having been banished, it's you yourself that have been the instrument of it. The pro <laughs> and I know this is true for me. I can't believe it. Most of us have an experience. So often we go through these turmoils where something happens and we will blame the world without seeing, without looking enough at ourselves. And at this point, she's saying, and as clearly as she can, the problem is that you're blaming the world. You're the one who's lost your way. And the only, the only way to answer that is to find your way back to who you are. Um, so she says that very clearly, 16, on... Um, there's a 20, 26. He keeps lamenting the fact that he's lost all of this thing and all of her thinking isn't going to help him recover it. 26. The human race would still repeat in its querulous complaints, though God should gratify their prayers with open-handed gifts of gold and furbish greed with pride of rank. All that God gave would seem as not. Rapacious greed who swallows all and opens other gaping mouths. No reins will serve to hold in check the headlong course of appetite. Once such largesse has fanned the flames of lust to have and hold, no man is rich who shakes and groans convinced that he needs more. <laughs> what, go ahead. What are you saying? Paraphrase it. No, it's just you, you can't have enough. You keep yeah. You wanting and wanting and you're hungry. You're yeah. constantly hungry. Yeah. Well, yeah, you're trying to find your happiness in... Let's say wealth right now. Yeah, in wealth or, you know, material things instead of... I mean, right, that's just the old Bible stuff. That old Bible stuff. That old Bible. Right? The new Bible stuff has got it too. Put your trust in man, put your trust in man. Let's imagine a guy who's got a fortune, who's won at everything, so he's amassed this great fortune. I'll tell you all about that. So, <laughs> you have to because I don't know it. Um, so, he's got everything. Um, is he happy? Why not? But stay away from the Bible just for a second. Stay with, just in, in, common, in common sense terms, because we know lots of people who've become really wealthy. I mean, what drives so you're their saying life. that's all they have. Let's just say, they, they so they've got all the money they wanted. What's right. the problem, basic problem, for even that person? More. Let's say it's not, because he, he said that. I right. mean, he said you can't, 
no amount will ever be enough. You want more, but let's say that's one of them. What's the other problem? Well, maybe they have they have broken relationships. They don't have a good relationship with their son or their wives or other people I think in the world. They lost their sense of purpose. Well, that's you guys are going. Yeah, that's, that's the wrong they, thing. They realize that even if they have all the money they ever could possibly want, it's they're still not happy. Let me ask you too. Is there any man who can amass that kind of fortune and not be afraid of losing it? Uh, oh, what, yes. Once, <laughs> once you amass, wait, I'm really, because I mean, all the other things you're saying are true, but what I'm, what I'm going, I'm trying, I think, oh, trying to go to something, sort of, is that even, even if you have all that money, what you're stuck with now, once you have it, is protecting it. Yeah. What man can rest easily once he has it because... Because he knows he's threatened everywhere. I mean, what, what he has to, he has to do all these things to keep it. So even having all that wealth will not will not bring peace to a man's soul. Wasn't it Carnegie who said, "Spend your first half of your life making your money, and the second half giving it away"? Well, yeah. well, he was dirt poor. That's why he believed that. Here, I want to shorten this because we have to stop. Boethius now will take up most of the major things that that most men pursue thinking that it will make them happy. Wealth, fame, office, power. Those are the major ones. Mm -hmm. Just briefly, because I think we're, we're about... What's wrong? What's the argument that she makes to show him that not one of those will bring him the happiness he seeks? Wealth, fame, office, power. Let's take wealth. What's... Because you can lose it as quickly as you can. Because you can lose it. So, and she asked the question: Is there anything intrinsically worthwhile in wealth? Do you remember what? Is there anything intrinsically value valuable in money? No. no. You have to buy. So you have to get something. Right. There's no intrinsic value to it. None. So one of the things she's doing is taking us towards this question: What's is there anything whose worth is intrinsic to itself? Because remember, she started by saying, you, you're, you've got amnesia. You don't even know who you are anymore. You've got to find out what your nature is and reco recover that. Because if you don't, you're going to stay in your grief. You're going, to, you're going to stay unhappy your life. So if you have wealth and you think, I'm going to be happy, one of the things you face is if you have wealth, is there any intrinsic worth in it? Is having all that money intrinsically worth it? And also... If you, if you gain it, it can be taken away. But one of the questions she's pointing to right now is, is there anything that has an intrinsic worth to it? Because if there is, she's going to ask the question, will, will that make you happy? What is it? What's wrong with um, fame? What's the problem with fame? That she, fleeting. Her, fleeting. And her, her image, remember her image is, if you look at the world and its scope, and think about your own personal fame. You're as a speck of nothing in the context of this gigantic world. And moreover, if you look at various countries and look at their notions of honor or fame, they're all different. So what is this thing called fame that, that's so important to you? Dismisses that. Office. If you're a tyrant, you've got control over everybody. For a while. That's right, until someone just... Because you've made all these enemies with your office. Until the next election. Right, right. <laughs> Until the next election. And power. Yeah. What's her argument about power? 
corrupt. Um, you have to defend that too from That's true. It makes you corrupt. Right. It's corrupt. Yeah. Eventually, you become corrupt. Yeah, and you have to believe in someone else to give you power over someone. And and here's the. Fred, did you answer? Oh no, I just, it, none of those are absolute in themselves. Mm -hmm. Explain that meaning. Well, take any one of them. It, 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 there's always something more powerful. Mm -hmm. and there's always something right. more wealthy. And it's and maybe not today, but and, it and, has and, no and there's always someone who can decide that it belongs to them. Yeah. You know, so it's. One of the issues that she raised it's is folks. It's not sufficient in itself. Self sufficient, right. which is going to be one of the major things. Is there anything that's lasting in itself that would be worth pursuing? For a human being to pursue these things that are not sufficient, intrinsically worthy, that are not sufficient in itself, if man puts, vests all his life in those things when all of them are perishable, then he's. Vesting in life is life in something that will be taken away. So take this thing of power because I want to leave. I want to leave in this note. One of the questions that she raises here is, "What's the end of all our actions? We pursue things because they're good. When a man exercises his power, but it's directed towards something that's not good, mm -hmm. what will the effects of that be on him with all the power that he has?" So the question that that raises is, what is this good then that justifies giving our lives to things? Because she makes clear in book two that when people give themselves to each one of these other things that are parts of something larger, none of them is lasting. So for man to be completely happy, his end has to be something that's good in itself, sufficient in itself, because if he vested in anything else, and all these other things are perishable or only parts, he's just setting himself up for misery. So the question that she raises at the beginning, you've got amnesia, you've lost your way, you yourself are responsible, you're blaming other people for having banished you, you yourself are the instrument of your own banishment because you don't even understand yourself anymore. What's your end? Should you be grieving right now? Um, if you had vested yourself in all these things, then why are, why are you even confused about it? By the way, one of the early on, one of the first, in the opening <coughs> section, she says, she says, um, um, have, have you, <coughs> she asked him, have you given yourself to the right thing? And he says, <laughs> he, he says, I only went into politics because I cared only for the good of other people. I didn't care what other people thought. And that sounds really noble. Naive. Huh? Naive. What's wrong with it? What, let's say naive. What else? He says, I, I, only, I didn't care what people thought or what they would do. I went into it for the good of politics itself. What's the irony right there? This is in the opening chapter. Because he's furious because of what they did. Yeah, what, why is he complaining? If he went into it and all these people are mistreated and he didn't care what they thought, then why is he even saying, I mean, so that... he tried. I hope everybody, the, the, yeah. there is a real irony running through this, that the natural Boethius, not the poet, the, but the is grieving, but, and so often justifies himself as what he's doing, and we're watching a man 
who's justifying what he do, who just who doesn't see the ironies of the situation because he's lost his sense of his nature, who he is, what his beginnings, what his ends are. The middle of the book where we are now, Lady Philosophy is asking, what does the good all people say? See, if it's not sufficient in itself, and men pursue it, how can they complain when they lose it? What is the ultimate good of man? What's the ground of his happiness? That's where we're going. The last two books, except they're going to—they're in an amazing way. They're—they're they're going to do it in terms that we won't ever get clear on who we are if we don't understand the way we know things. That's fundamental because it defines the way we stand in the world. So the last two chapters to me are just brilliant. Okay, so enjoy, well, enjoy the believe in rationalizations. We'll, we'll, we'll be meeting at our house next Monday, okay? And you will tell us... You guys bring dinner. You will tell us your address, right? <laughs> we'll send, yes, we'll send a map. You don't need a map, just need an Yeah, that's right.